I want to talk to you tonight as we have just a few days left before we begin this focus on experiencing God together that we've been talking about for about a month now. And as we think about next Sunday and what we're going to begin to do together as a church, uh, we're going to be focusing very much on our individual relationship to the Lord, and particularly on Sunday nights as we come together and study the actual course, uh, knowing and doing the will of God, the seven realities of knowing and doing the will of God. Uh, we're going to focus on, on our relationship with God as individuals. But listen, on Sunday morning, we're going to be focusing on our relationship with God as, a, as his people together. And so I want to talk to you tonight about four ways to pray for his church. I changed that title about three times uh, this afternoon when I was looking at that. I, I had four ways to pray for my church. I thought, well, you know, it's not my church. And then I thought about four ways to pray for our church. And I thought, well, you know, it's not our church. It's his church. But how can we pray? And, and we need to be praying about these weeks that are coming. And so I, um, I want to call your attention to John 17 tonight. And this is the prayer that Jesus prayed before he went to die on the cross. He prayed for himself in the first five verses. Uh, from verse 6 to about verse 19, he prayed for his disciples who were going to be left behind after his death. And then he prays in verse 20, uh, and we're going to really be looking at that section, uh, down to about verse 24, he prays for you and me. And, and he's got you and I on his heart as he prays his prayer. And, and someday, I would like to just study this with, a, with us together as a church and just go through this chapter verse by verse, and really look at what Jesus prayed for on this occasion. But tonight, I just want to, if you'll let me, I just want to pick out four things that really have struck me and that I believe give guidance to you and I as we think about praying together as a church over the next few weeks. I met this afternoon with your prayer team and began to think through some of the details associated with the week of prayer that we have planned from March 5th through March 12th. During those seven days, we have planned a 168-hour prayer meeting. And I hope that you're intrigued by that, excited about that. And um, for 168 hours, we're going to have an unbroken, uh, unceasing, unified uh, time to pray together. And as we talked over those things, we talked over all the different kinds of things we could be praying about, but we can't pray about everything, can we? We wanted to focus on what is it that the Lord wants us to pray on about as a church? What is on his heart that he wants us to pray about as a church, as Wynn Baptist Church? So going into these eight weeks, that'll be at the end, but going into these eight weeks, uh, how can you be praying for our church? Well, as uh, we look at John 17, there are four ways to pray. Let me give you one. Here's the first one. Pray for every person to sense the glory of God. To sense the glory of God. In uh, verse 22 of John 17, it says, And the glory which you gave me, I have given them. Now think about that. And the glory which you gave me, I have given them. I've given it to the church, the glory that was given to Jesus. I have given them. Why? That they may be one. This is the purpose. That his glory would come among his people. That they may be one just as we are one. 
And so Jesus said, I've given my glory to these people. And the purpose that I've given my glory to these people is that they might be one. Now, what does that mean? Well, the word glory uh, in the original language is a word that means, literally, it means to talk about the outshining, something that's brilliantly bright, uh, a bright light. But it also can refer to the visible manifestation of splendor, of power, and radiance that comes from God. And so it is his desire that his people continually sense, that you and I would sense his splendor, his power, and his majesty in our lives. Now, how does that foster unity? I think it's pretty obvious, isn't it? That if we are preoccupied, if we are focused, if we are sensing his glory, then we're all seeing and experiencing him in the same way, uniquely as individuals, but we're, we're sensing who he is. And suddenly our eyes are not on one another. Our eyes are not preoccupied just with our concerns and our problems. Our eyes, all eyes, are on him. And that creates unity when we are all preoccupied with him. Howard Hendricks once said, he was a professor at Dallas Seminary for many years, very wise man. He said, the church doesn't need more workers. It needs more worshipers. Not more workers, but more worshipers. Too many times we arrive at worship services, we're preoccupied. I know even not myself, and I'm here to preach. Sometimes I come preoccupied, and I have to clear my mind and clear my heart of what's distracting me, focus sometimes on what we can get from the service rather than what we give to the service. When a church really worships, when we as his people really seek to please God and have fellowship with him and with one another, there is his glory. And he comes and he dwells among us. And listen, when people see a worshiping church, it draws unbelievers like a magnet. They come in, they sense the difference. They sense the difference sometimes even just driving by that group when we're in worship together. And so in such a church, the glory of God is revealed. And so the real value of a church is not in the property that it has, not in its programming or its pastors, uh, really not even in the people. The real value of a church is that Jesus is in it. Jesus is in his people. He's dwelling among his people, and he's here among us. And that's where our greatest value comes from. So in the next eight weeks, how can you pray? God, show us your glory. Lord, reveal to us who you are in such a way that we just forget about everything else. We want to know you. We want to see, not just with our, not with our physical eyes, but with our hearts. We want to see who you are. Ask God for that, would you? Join me in that. Secondly, a second way to pray for the church is to pray for every person to receive what God is going to say. To receive what God is going to say. In verse 8, Jesus says, For I have given to them the words which you have given me, and they have received them. God gave words to Jesus, and then he says his disciples, us, they have received them, the ones that were around him at that time, and have known surely that I came forth from you, and they have believed that you sent me. A lot of times we think of the word in terms 
of what I'm supposed to do. We think of the word in terms of what I am to believe. But the sense in which Jesus is using it here, he's using the word in the sense of what God wants to do in terms of his work that he wants to accomplish through us as a group, through us as his people. Sometimes he speaks uh, to you as an individual. I don't know about you. Sometimes um, he speaks to me, and I'm thinking, surely that wasn't God. You know, I I sense a prompting um, to do something, to say something, to call someone, to send a text, to write a letter, to go by their house, to drop in, to say something to them, to talk to them about something in particular. And sometimes that comes, and uh, I remember as I was wanting to learn and grow in my understanding of God speaking, sometimes those things would come and I would just let it go by. Other times, and it happens more often than not in my work as a pastor, but it would be true of anybody, any Christian, anywhere. He puts someone on my mind, and uh, when that person comes to mind, I've learned that that often is not an accident. That when someone is brought to your mind, you weren't particularly thinking about them, but they come to mind, often the Holy Spirit is bringing that person to your mind for a purpose, for a reason. And when, and when that comes, God is speaking to us many, many times. And what's significant about that is if I let that go by, something is, is missed. There's a missed opportunity there. Because when God guides you and I in prayer, and he guides our actions, and he directs our actions, and we're really going to see this as we go through the Experiencing God material, that when God shows us what it is he wants us to do, it's because it's what he wants to do, and he's going to empower that thing and do something that's truly remarkable. We don't want to miss that. We want to be a part of that. And uh, because when God speaks, when God guides us, it's because he's about to do something. One of the great verses on that in the Bible is Isaiah 55, 11. So shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void. But it shall accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. Are you saying, Pastor, that when somebody comes to mind, God brings something to mind that I'm supposed to do, maybe contact someone, I just feel a a sense of oughtness that I ought to make that call, send that note, go by and see that person, that God's about to do something? Yes. Yes. And one of the great reasons we should latch hold of that in faith and saying, God, I believe you're leading me to do this thing, is because God is at work. It's not just you at work. It's just not you being even obedient. It's God using you for his purpose in that moment. So pray for that. Pray that you and I would become increasingly more and more and more and more a people who just become sensitive to God's leading, his promptings, knowing that when I say yes in that moment, it's because he's about to do something really powerful, really cool. Number three, pray that each person is able to revision life as a mission. Revision, life is a mission. That my life is not just about getting up, going to work, saving some money, having a good retirement, having children or grandchildren or something else. That my life is not just a cycle of life, birth, growing up, 
getting old, passing away, that there's a mission. There's a purpose. There's an assignment that comes from him. In John 17, verse 17, Jesus said, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. Just dwell on that. Jesus was sent into the world. He said, in the same way that I was sent to the world, I have sent them into the world. That's you and me. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself that they also may be sanctified by the truth. And we could spend a lot of time on that, but let me, let me try to make this really, really simple. What, what are we known for as Christians? Well, I think we can be known for a lot of different things. We can be known for the stands we take. We can be known for the way that we, we make decisions or the way we go about our business. And to the rest of the world, as they look at you and I, we look strange. We can appear to be weird. And the thing that defines us for some people as they look at most Christians, they may look at them and say, you know, those people are just weird. They're, they're mean or they're harsh or they're not loving or they're not caring or whatever the case may be. Jesus prays in this moment that you and I would be sanctified by truth. The word sanctified, as Pastor mentioned this morning, means to be set apart. That word to be sanctified means to be set apart for use of someone in particular, dedicated to someone else's use. If, if I have a hammer, it's my hammer, no one else uses that hammer, that hammer is sanctified for my use. And he says, I'm praying, Father, that you would sanctify your people, how? With truth. And that because of that truth, the natural consequence of that truth is that we would be sent out to model, exhibit, and share that truth to others. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. We are set apart for God's purpose, God's use, and the way we are set apart is through this incredible truth about the love of God and his mercy and the grace that he offers freely to those who will turn to him in repentance and faith. I came across a story that I wanted to share um, of someone who actually went through this process. And his name is John Maxwell. He's known for a lot of different things. But um, his earlier years are really remarkable in how God worked in his life. Just listen to what he said. This is, this is his revisioning life as a mission. I must admit, I didn't always give evangelism the time and attention it deserved in my ministry. When I arrived at my first pastorate in Hillham, Indiana, my goal was to build a big church. I started with only three people. But as I rolled up my sleeves, worked hard, and got to know the people of the town, the church began to grow. One day, Betty, a member of the church, called and asked if I would visit her friend in the hospital. So I did. I visited Bob many times, and we talked about all kinds of things. Our favorite subject was the Boston Celtics, our favorite basketball team. One day, after I visited him and several other people in the hospital, I called home before driving to the office. Margaret was very quiet on the phone, and I asked, what's the matter? I just got off the phone with Betty, she said. Bob died. What? I was just with him 45 minutes ago. I know, honey, Margaret said, but he's gone. Her words hung in the air like the ringing of an iron door slamming shut. Betty wanted to know if you'd do the funeral. Sure, I said, absentmindedly. Tell her I'll do it. I was devastated. I realized at that moment that Bob had gone 
not to heaven, but to hell, because he had the misfortune of having me as the pastor who visited with him. During our talks, never once had I talked to him about salvation. Cancel tonight's service, I told Margaret. I can't face all those people. I need some time alone. I did perform Bob's funeral. When I saw the coffin with him in it, I was crushed. I cried, not just because I was grieving Bob's death, but because I had failed to share the gospel with him. It was then that I began wrestling with God. Over the course of the next few months, he began changing my heart. I realized that my agenda was not God's agenda. Finally, one night, I got on my knees and gave it over to God in prayer. I gave up my desire to be a great preacher and to grow an impressive church, and I asked God for the power of the Holy Spirit to simply be a witness. And God honored that prayer. I learned to share my faith. After that, not a week went by that someone in the community didn't come to know Christ. One year, I committed to the people in the congregation that I would try to personally lead 200 people to Christ outside of the church. I missed that goal by 12 people. I learned a lot about sharing my faith. Then I began equipping others to share their faith. At my second church in Lancaster, Ohio, I trained and equipped 18 people who were on fire for Jesus. They were responsible for winning over 1,800 people to Christ during the eight years I was with that church. We received a lot of blessings from God there because I believe the church was doing everything it could to achieve the mission that God gave to it. Number four, last way to pray. We need to pray about the mission. Number four, pray that every person would come to know the joy of the Lord. The joy of the Lord. In verse 13, Jesus says, But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Adoniram Judson, one of the namesakes for Judd, Adoniram Judson was one of the, was one of the first missionaries uh, sent, or that was a Baptist missionary from the American soil overseas. And he shared the gospel in Burma. When he first arrived there in 1812, um, he didn't know any of the language, didn't know any of the basic words, didn't know how to say hello, didn't know anything. So he gets off the boat. The very first man that he meets, first Burmese man that he meets, he goes up to him, and he wraps his arms around him, and he hugs him. Later, he found out the man went home to his wife. And uh, there was so much joy in Adoniram Judson, so much joy radiating from this man that he went home and told his wife that he had met Mr. Glory Face. <laughs> Mr. Glory Face. And pretty soon all the people were talking about Mr. Glory Face, and Mr. Glory Face didn't know they were even talking about him because of the joy that he had. God wants us to know joy that flows out of our relationship with him. How does that work? How does that work? Well, there, there's much we could say, but, but if I was going to make it short, I would turn to a very uh, familiar phrase and maybe a not-so-familiar passage of Scripture found in Nehemiah chapter 8. And I want to read it, and I'm going to close with this. Nehemiah 8, verse 9. Now, this is a story from Nehemiah's life. Uh, Nehemiah was sent back to Jerusalem by God to rebuild the walls. But what we discover as you read the book 
is that it wasn't just about rebuilding the walls, it was about rebuilding the people. And they had been cut off from the Word of God, from the Scriptures, uh, most of their lives. Many of them had never heard uh, what God's heart was, how He wanted them to live, how to serve Him, how to know Him. And they came one day and they read the Scriptures out loud to the people. And the people hearing the Word of God were devastated. We have blown it. We have messed up. We have missed God so far. We have, we have not even come close to what God wants us to be and to do. And what happens next is really remarkable. Listen, and Nehemiah, this is Nehemiah 8 verse 9. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, this is after they're weeping and crying, after hearing the Bible, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn nor weep. For all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. Now, why is this day holy to the Lord? Because the people hearing God's word were, were so moved, so attentive, so sensitive. Okay, yeah, they had missed it. They had, they had fallen short of it. But their love, their attentiveness for the word was a reflection of their love for him. And the Lord received that. Not their righteousness. They didn't have any. But he received their affection. He received their attention. He received their, their heart. And so in verse 10 we read, Then he said to them, to the people, Go your way, eat the fat, drink the sweet, and send portions to those for whom nothing is prepared. For this day is holy to, the Lord, to our Lord. Do not sorrow. Why? For the joy of the Lord is your strength. How many of you have heard that phrase before? The joy of the Lord is your strength. We take it out of context when we divorce it from what was happening. What was happening, remember, people are upset because the word's been read and their hearts are crushed. The priests and the leaders come to them and say, look, you understand because of your response, this day is holy to the Lord. You have the grace of God, the favor of God on your life. And, and because you have the favor of God, the joy of the Lord, that's what it is. God's joy, his favor, his grace, his mercy on your life, that is your strength. That is your strength. Some of you sitting here tonight, you feel like I've messed up. I'm not worried about the church or what they're going to do in the next eight weeks. I'm worried about how I'm going to get through the next eight minutes. I feel like such a failure. I feel so ruined. I, I feel like I've so messed up. Listen, the joy of the Lord is your strength. His favor on your life is your strength. So how do, you, how do you move into that? How do you go there? You turn to him. You can't clean yourself up. Only Jesus is the one who carries away our sin. Only Jesus is the one who carries away our sin, right? So I can't make that go away. Only Jesus can do that. And, and so what he comes, he says, will you just turn to me? Will you repent? Will you trust me? And repent means to turn. Will you trust me? And you can have and know the grace and the favor of God. That is your strength. The joy of the Lord over you is your strength. We want to pray that every person 
who's part of our church family, would know the joy of the Lord like that. Like that. Can you imagine if 200, 300, 400 people left this church every Sunday with the joy of the Lord? With the joy of the Lord? With a sense of God's favor in my life? I don't deserve it. I've not earned it. Uh, There's no way I can understand it. But by simply turning to the Lord and say, here am I. I love you, Lord. The favor of the Lord rests on us. We're going to take a few moments to just rejoice in that and um, to rejoice in God's grace and his mercy he's given you and me. I want to encourage you to pray that those who are in bondage will be set free, that those whose hearts are broken, their hearts will be mended, uh, that those that know to, need to know forgiveness from God will know forgiveness. Uh, to those who have lost their way and don't know where even to begin, that they would find the starting point that they desperately are looking for tonight and uh, every week for the next two months. Let me ask you to bow your heads. Uh, would you please and close your eyes? Um, I'm going to pray for us in just a moment. Our pastors will be standing down front. If you would like to talk to one of them, counsel with one of them, just say whatever is on your heart, they'll pray with you. If you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, they'll help you uh, see the scriptures that you will answer your questions about how a person becomes a Christian. It's a work of God. It's a work of God. It's not something that we do. It's something God does in us. But by trusting Jesus Christ, your life can be changed tonight. Trusting what he did for you on the cross. That he carried away your sins and that he is here tonight to come into your heart to change you from the inside out.